Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is brought to you by audible.com. My recommendation today is The Popes, a history by John Julius Norwich. Get it for free right now at audibletrial.com forward slash TV critic. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 114, International Relations. While doing the research for the last three episodes, I came across a number of anecdotes and useful bits of information which didn't really fit into those shows. But looking at them, I saw that they all shared in the theme of international relations. How did the Caliphate and the Byzantines and the Franks all communicate, trade and interact with one another? Today's episode will not be an exhaustive study of that topic, But I think it's a fascinating little collection of stories which should give you a real insight into the world of the 9th century. Let's start with the relationship between Byzantium and the Caliphate. Last century, you may remember, we delved into the murky understanding each side had of the other. The Byzantines finally got their hands on the Quran, and a few clerics made comments about the value of this heathen text, while Arab guides to the House of War described attractive blonde women known for their promiscuity. Has another century helped the two sides have a clearer picture of each other? The answer, as you might expect, is sort of. Sadly, neither side preserves a guidebook, giving us a flavour of the popular understanding of their neighbours, but details do emerge which suggest that two centuries on from the siege of Constantinople, each side had become accustomed to the status quo. And with acceptance of your neighbour as permanent came a slight warming of relations. We saw hints of détente in the narrative. Instead of distancing himself from the behaviour of a Muslim, it seemed like Theophilus tried to emulate Harun al-Rashid. The famous caliph was rumoured to have dressed as a beggar and wandered the streets to see how his city functioned outside of the palace, 
and Theophilus's weekly rides across the city were thought to be an emulation of this. Theophilus also sent the smartest man he knew, his tutor John the Grammarian, to Baghdad to show off the empire's wealth and learning. John returned with suggestions for the emperor, which we suspect influenced his architecture and the golden menagerie he built in the throne room. The desire to impress the caliphs in Baghdad seems to have been a concern of various emperors across the last century. In addition to John, both Photius and the future Saint Cyril, who inspired the Cyrillic alphabet, were sent on embassies to the caliphate. Now, of course, you wouldn't choose ignorant men to speak for the empire, but these were the intellectual creme de la creme of Byzantium. Presumably, the desire was for men who couldn't be tripped up by any Muslim attempt to embarrass. None is reported, and it seems that they took Greek texts with them as gifts for the caliph's growing libraries. The Abbasids were also keen to maintain their reputation in Byzantine eyes. We have quite a few details of an embassy which arrived in Baghdad in 917, a few years after our century ended. By then the caliphate was in decline and trying to hide it from prying Roman eyes. The Byzantine ambassadors were greeted by the vizier and told that it was unlikely the caliph would ever have time to see them but that they should hang around just in case. They were treated well and given an empty palace to stay in. The caliph al-Muqtadir tried to publicise this event, as his faltering legitimacy could be shored up by the propaganda of showing Romans around the glorious city. So one day the vizier knocked on their door, announced that the caliph would see them today, and then they were led out into the streets where troops were lined up to escort them. They entered the caliph's palace and were led through a bewildering series of reception rooms and corridors, all lined with troops and officials. Finally, they appeared before the commander of the faithful, who graciously accepted their request. And what were they asking for? They wanted an exchange of prisoners. In earlier centuries, exchanges were relatively rare. Usually only when a truce was agreed would a prisoner swap be organised. Otherwise, people taken in combat were simply sold into slavery. But with the Byzantines becoming ever better at hiding and counter-attacking, and the caliphate slowly dissolving, exchanges became more common. Again, Theophilus is associated with pushing for this to happen more often. No surprise in the wake of the sack of Amorium. We know of 12 such exchanges across the past century. Interestingly, they always took place at the same spot, on a plain where the river Lamis runs into the sea. You can see this on the map if you find the city of Seleucia, on the edge of Cilicia, on the Roman side. This is the only spot on the border where there aren't mountains. It's in the small gap between the Taurus and the Isaurian range. This was an obvious spot because the wide plain prevented an ambush by either side. Apparently the exchanges would usually take a week to complete and involved somewhere between two and six thousand captives. There were not always equal numbers 
on each side. We also have details of a Muslim ambassador who came to Constantinople. He arrived in 861 to discuss an exchange. Captured Arab officers were usually taken to Constantinople to live under house arrest. There was no chance of escape from there. Some would end up staying for years and convert to Christianity. On this occasion, the issue of conversion was discussed, and it was agreed that Muslim prisoners would be given the choice of whether they wanted to return home or not. We know of an Arab eunuch who worked for Stylianos Zaudzis, who rose high in the palace hierarchy. He obviously had no problem becoming a Christian, and apparently his father came to visit on an embassy from his hometown of Tarsus. His dad was so impressed by his son's career that he asked if he would be allowed to stay. In order to further improve relations with their neighbours, the Byzantines seem to have allowed the construction of a mosque in the capital during the past century. Now, this may have simply been a room or part of an old building that was turned over to this new use rather than a fresh construction. But it was still a significant gesture on the part of the Romans. In theory, this meant that prisoners would not be coerced into converting and that merchants and ambassadors would be made to feel at home. A clear acknowledgement of the permanence of their eastern neighbours and their new faith. News of the mosque's existence comes to us from one of the characters I introduced toward the end of the narrative, the patriarch Nicholas Mysticus. He was a long-standing friend of Leo VI, and he will play a key role when our story resumes. We have a letter from him to the Caliph from around the turn of the century, where he uses exceptionally warm language in describing the relationship between the two sides. He refers to their fraternal fellowship and says it is from this unique God that we all received the power of government. In another letter to the Emir of Crete, he wrote, There are two lordships, that of the Saracens and that of the Romans, which stand above all lordships on earth and shine out like the two mighty beacons in the firmament. They ought, for this very reason alone, to be in contact and brotherhood, and not, because we differ in our lives and habits and religion, remain alien in all ways to each other. This is certainly the friendliest I can remember either side ever being. What it reminds me most of is the relationship the Romans used to share with the Sassanid Persians. Back then, uh, Justinian and Khusro might have used language like this to describe one another in between, you know, going to war. And I think that's the key to Nicholas's letter. He wrote to the Caliph a good 70 years after the sack of Amorium. The Byzantines were now used to the actual Caliph being a distant figure, like the old Shan Shah, who would no longer himself come to Anatolia. Despite the fact that his agents in Melitene and Tarsus continuously raided the empire, the Romans viewed him far more favourably, given the new distance between them.
Before we all get too warm and fuzzy, though, we should remember that this friendliness suited each side's current political interests. Dismissive racism was certainly the norm for a lot of people living on either side of the border. Several Arab scholars who translated Greek texts took the opportunity to comment that the current Greek speakers in Anatolia were poor cousins compared to their ancestral forebears. While around the time our narrative closed, a satirical pamphlet circulated in Constantinople mocking the Muslims' sensual view of paradise. Let's move west and have a look at communications between Byzantium and the Carolingians. Now, we talked a little about this last time, but listener S asks how much did the two sides communicate? Was it a regular stream of correspondence, or had it become more sporadic? This answer also depends on the political needs of the day. If there was no conflict of interest going on, then the emperors didn't bother to write to one another about trivial matters. Whereas Basil and Louis II had a running correspondence about how to deal with the Arab raiders in Italy, what the future of Sicily would be, and the issue of the imperial title. There was, of course, plenty of other communication going on. The popes and patriarchs informed one another of various decisions and appointments. Bishops and monks from all over the Mediterranean exchanged letters when they could. And merchants who travelled between Italy and Anatolia would spread information and gossip as they went. Formal embassies, though, where real discussions could be had between the two sides were relatively rare. They were only dispatched when a true sticking point had been reached. In part, this was because of the complexity of travel between the West and Constantinople. A good example of this was the journey of Amalarius, a bishop and head of an embassy sent by Charlemagne to Constantinople in 813. They were sent to greet the new emperor Michael Ragave and formalize a peace treaty between the two sides. The group who set off was quite big. Uh, we don't have exact details, but at least 20, possibly even 40 people were involved. Uh, Amalarius and an abbot were in charge with secretaries, servants and security helping out. They made their way to Venice, which was the natural launch point to head east. They took a ship from there to Zadar in Dalmatia, where the local clergy greeted them warmly. There was apparently a lot of note-sharing over the differences between Latin and Greek liturgy while they were there. Soon, a Byzantine warship arrived to escort them further, but bad weather forced them to put in at Dyrrhachium. Having set off in spring, it was July by the time they reached the Aegean, and again, strong winds made further progress impossible, so they put in near Athens to wait. The locals informed them that the emperor had been deposed by his general Leo the Armenian and that it wasn't safe to travel to the capital because the Bulgar Khan Krum was busy sacking the European shore. They finally arrived in the capital in the autumn and had to spend the winter there. They were granted an audience with Leo after nearly three months of waiting. He was busy with the military situation, as you can imagine, 
He exchanged pleasantries with them and deputized two officials to travel back with them and sign the treaty. On the return leg, they sailed carefully, panicked by the sight of an Arab ship on the way, but reached Italy in spring 814 and were promptly told that Charlemagne was dead. They crossed the Alps and made their way north to greet Louis the Pious. The peace was formalized, but Amalarius who had been serving his kingdom for 18 months straight on this mission, was told that he had been deposed from his bishopric. That's one example of the problems associated with direct communications between the Christian realms. The travel itinerary changed a few decades later, though, when the Pope's envoys needed to make their way to Pliska to proselytize to Khan Boris. Suddenly, a Christian Bulgaria meant that the overland route was open for business, and the envoys could avoid the terrors of the sea for the first time since Heraclius' day. By the time Basil was emperor and courting the Pope's support, his representatives crossed the old Roman road, undisturbed all the way to Thessalonica. Again, we have some details left to us by one of the legates, Marinus, Eager to please Basil, had his men meet them at a town near the capital with a silver dinner service and forty horses to carry them to the city. The emperor then met them in the palace personally and kissed them hello, which was a big deal. Marinus and his fellow legates stayed all winter and presided over the ecumenical council which deposed Photius. However, Basil showed off his inner stable boy as the council dragged on by bullying Marinus into accepting that the Bulgarian church must be under Constantinople's jurisdiction. On the way home, the legates were escorted to Dyrrhachium, but then boarded a merchant vessel headed for Italy. As they entered the Adriatic, they were captured by Slav pirates. They were taken to stay with the Prince of the Croats, who jailed them for over a month. The Franks were angry, and questioned whether Basil had arranged this to punish them for their intransigence. But they were released after both sides applied diplomatic pressure. Marinus reached home just before Christmas, after another lengthy piece of international diplomacy. The physical distance between the Franks and the Byzantines led to a psychological distance too. Listener RP asks, at what point did Western Europeans start calling the Byzantines Greeks? I made brief mention in the narrative of an angry exchange of letters between Michael III and the Pope, where the former referred to Latin as a barbarian tongue. And the latter asked, why then did Michael call himself Emperor of the Romans? Yes, this was the century when the term Greek was first used to describe the Byzantines. And yes, Charlemagne's coronation had everything to do with it. The first written reference to the Byzantines being Greeks comes in a book called The History of the Lombards by Paul the Deacon. Paul's history covers Byzantine matters as they relate to the Lombards, and so there is discussion of past emperors like Phocas and Heraclius, all of whom are referred to as Roman 
emperors. But when Constans II moves his court from Constantinople to Sicily in the 660s, we have a problem. As you may recall, Constans hoped to drive the Lombards out of southern Italy to give himself a secure home base. According to Paul, the Greeks arrived in those days to plunder the sanctuary of the Holy Archangel, which was situated on Mount Garganus. Grimwald, Duke of the Lombards, attacked them with his army and slaughtered them. Strangely, Constans's son, Constantine IV, was later referred to as Emperor of the Romans, and Justinian II was the next Roman Emperor after him. Paul was one of the writers patronised by Charlemagne. He was writing his history as the Carolingian sense of destiny was growing in intellectual circles. Though it was published before Charles was made emperor himself, Paul's motives are clear. He wants to paint the Byzantines as only having jurisdiction over their eastern provinces. Italy was now the domain of the Franks. Thus, he labels them Greeks. Once Charlemagne had become Roman emperor, Paul's designation was picked up by others. Einhard, who wrote a biography of Charles after his death, referred to all Byzantine emperors as Greeks. He says of Charlemagne's conquests that he annexed the whole of Italy, which extends from Eosta to southern Calabria, at the point where the boundaries between the Greeks and the Beneventines are. Naturally, Einhard wasn't going to call the Byzantines Romans. That would prompt the question of how Charlemagne could call himself Roman Emperor. So, throughout this influential tome, the Eastern Romans simply become Greeks. Future Westerners would absorb this understanding of their Eastern cousins by disassociating the Byzantines from Western Europe in this way. It became natural to view them as foreign, and it's not a big leap from there to see them as suspicious, dangerous, heretical, and so on. Obviously, we'll discuss this more as it develops. We move on now to the relationship between Western Europe and the Caliphate. As you can imagine, for a long time, the two realms only dimly understood one another, even though technically their forces met in war back in 732 at the Battle of Tours. The only direct diplomatic contact we know of is an embassy which Charlemagne sent to Jerusalem. Aware of God's favour to him, Charles sent ambassadors to Harun al-Rashid to offer his patronage for the churches of the Holy City. Harun was happy for a distant monarch to pay for the upkeep of a few buildings and sent an elephant to Arkan in an exchange of gifts. It's the less official exchanges between the two sides which I thought you'd find more interesting. In particular, I'm talking about pilgrimage and the slave trade. With eastern Anatolia an active war zone for the past 300 years, you'd think that pilgrimage to the Holy Land would have been impossible. 
But actually, visitors kept making their way from Europe to Jerusalem throughout this period. An Anglo-Saxon clergyman, Willibald, made an amazing journey around the eastern Mediterranean back in the 720s. He took a ship from Italy to Ephesus and then crawled along the Anatolian coast via Cyprus to Syria. He was arrested in the caliphate on suspicion of being a spy and then had to smuggle goods out to pay for his journey home. Sadly, it's not his tale we're interested in, but more the contrast it offers with travel in our period. Willibald's trip took years, and he had to dodge the plague as well as the law in order to visit the Holy Land. But another cleric's journey in 867 shows how times change. Our traveller this time is Bernard, a Frank from Champagne. He travelled with the Pope's permission to the city of Bari, which at the time was occupied by Arab raiders from Sicily. Fascinatingly, the Emir of Bari was perfectly happy to write out a passport for a Christian pilgrim to go travelling in the Caliphate, once he'd been paid, of course. Bernard and his companions then had to wait for a ship which would be going to Alexandria. Awkwardly, the one they got on was carrying slaves back to Egypt, Christian Italian slaves taken in the Emir's last raid. Undeterred, Bernard presented his letter to the authorities in Alexandria, but they charged him 13 gold coins to write a new passport that would only take him down to Cairo. Once there, the governor of Egypt met him personally, and he charged each of the group 13 coins to travel further. Once this was done, though, the travellers moved off freely and made their way by land to Jerusalem. This was clearly no isolated voyage. In the holy city, Bernard stayed in a hostel attached to the Church of the Virgin, set up to house pilgrims. And Bernard wrote directions to all the holy sites in his account of his trip. He was clearly writing a guide for future Carolingian visitors. He even comments that travelling by road in the Caliphate is far safer than in Italy. The relative ease of travel that Bernard enjoyed compared to Willibald speaks to important changes in the Mediterranean world. The Franks had certainly come to accept the Muslim occupation of the Holy Land as permanent, and it did not stop them from fulfilling their desire to follow in the footsteps of biblical figures. We should also note that Byzantium was absent from Bernard's story. Willibald had to go through the empire to get to Syria, and he visited Constantinople and Nicaea and various other places on the way to see religious sites. Whereas Bernard could bypass it entirely, go to Jerusalem and go home. Again, the estrangement of Western Europe from Byzantium is in evidence. Other than the personal spiritual benefits of such trips, Another purpose of pilgrimage was to bring relics back to the churches of the West. As our discussions about iconoclasm made clear, religious objects like these were highly valued. They offered prestige and protection, 
they attracted tourism, and they could be sold for profit or given as gifts to visiting clergy. A lot of the information I've mentioned today comes from a book called Origins of the European Economy by Michael McCormick. McCormick does an excellent study of two French relic collections. These churches built up impressive ensembles of saints' remains and logged where and when they got them. What's fascinating from our point of view is how these relic collections demonstrate the shifting of geopolitics across the course of our podcast. The earliest finds come from all over the Roman world, but sure enough, once the Arabs appear, Anatolia disappears as a source of relics. Across the 7th and 8th centuries, Western churchmen were forced to scour safer locations, like Italy, for valuable finds though a steady stream still came from Jerusalem, as men like Willibald found a way through. Once we reach the 9th century, though, suddenly relics from closer to home predominate. The saints of Cologne and Zurich have become worthy enough to leave behind evidence of God's blessings. And, of course, objects from Egypt and the Sinai start to appear alongside those from Palestine. These relic collections point to the growing self-confidence of Western Europe. A century before, their clergy had to travel to find objects to venerate, but now Charlemagne's achievements had infused their realm with enough sacred power to provide its own objects of devotion. And though occasionally a relic from Constantinople appears, Again, Byzantium is largely bypassed, and the West can get what it needs from the Holy Land without needing to think about them. Finally then, one practical issue will complete the circle of 9th century international relations. Who was ferrying all these diplomats, embassies and relic hunters around? To hire a ship of your own was prohibitively expensive, so it was merchant vessels which carried all of these travellers. Pilgrims and ambassadors alike would turn up at a likely port and wait to see who was available. They would pay for passage on ships which were already planning to go in their direction of travel. Again, we might have assumed that trade between Christian Europe and the Caliphate would be non-existent, but on the contrary trade never seems to have ceased, even if the routes and destinations altered. The key middlemen in trade between East and West by our period were the Venetians. It would have been difficult for Byzantine merchants to move freely about the ports of the enemy, and so the opportunity opened up for the seemingly neutral sailors of Venice to fill this gap in the market. Their ships used to travel in small convoys for safety. In one pilgrim's tale, for example, ten Venetian ships were sitting in the harbour at Alexandria when he arrived. The dark side of this story is that it seems likely that the Venetians' most profitable export were slaves. This was certainly not the only item they brought to sell, and I will be talking more about trade and economics in later episodes, but the item that could fetch the best profits were human beings. 
According to McCormick's work, this new trade began to grow after 750. As you may remember, this was the last serious outbreak of bubonic plague. Constantine V was forced to repopulate his capital with people from the Aegean Islands. And Yersinia Pestis swept across the whole of the Mediterranean and beyond, targeting cities and ports as usual. This loss of life exacerbated a situation already going on in the Caliphate because the Abbasid Wars of Conquest were grinding to a halt at about the same time. Across the Muslim world, then, there was a pressing need for new flesh. The conquerors had become accustomed to having houses staffed by domestic slaves, and the new city of Baghdad wasn't going to build itself. Not to mention the eunuchs that would be required to run its harems and bedchambers. European slaves were in demand. The Arabs of Crete and Sicily naturally made a good living from this, but they only arrived in the 820s. Before and after them, Franks, Byzantines and Venetians were all involved, but it was the men of Venice who sailed the seas most often, with people amongst their cargo. Despite the Pope's warnings on the subject, it seems likely that this involved selling off Christians. But increasingly, slave traders looked to the pagan peoples beyond the imperial frontiers. Slavs and steppe nomads were up for grabs, hence the derivation of the word slave from Slav. Their lack of faith made them fair game. As we'll discuss next time, this presumably helped motivate the Bulgars and others to seek conversion to Christianity. But in the meantime, Venetian wealth was growing rapidly. The ninth century saw the first big churches go up, and hordes of Arab dinars have been found, along with references to Arab money in Venetian texts, written on nice Egyptian papyrus. No wonder the Franks and Byzantines were willing to go to war over control of the trading city. We'll close then with listener A.R.'s question, as he wants to know more about the relationship between Venice and Constantinople. Despite going to war to keep them out of the clutches of the Franks, the Byzantines did not control Venice. Rather like those Armenian princes who were accepting imperial titles, the relationship was a loose one. Cooperation was expected and received, but direct control was impossible. Leo V actually tried to place an embargo on trade with the Caliphate, which the Venetians were able to ignore. The men of Venice did fight the Arabs of Sicily, but they left as soon as they reasonably could and focused on their primary business. Venice was still too small and vulnerable to simply declare independence and take on the world on its own, so it operated like an independent duchy that was closely allied with Constantinople. They could have the best of both worlds, enjoying the protection and prestige of the empire without the interference or regulation. If the Byzantines could have imposed direct rule, they probably would have. But they were content with the alliance. It gave them a listening post and trading station in Western Europe, as well as an ally to guard their possessions in the area. Various Dalmatian 
ports and other cities like Naples enjoyed a similar relationship with the empire. Culturally, Byzantium certainly influenced Venice, but so did the Franks. Byzantine style in clothes and architecture were admired and mimicked. Byzantine court titles were sought after, and speaking Greek was a useful skill. But the Venetians were very much their own people at this point. Their relationship with the Byzantines made complete sense, as long as the empire controlled all the Adriatic and Aegean outposts that it did, and as long as Constantinople remained such an important market. But if those things ever changed, the Venetians would look out for themselves. They'd already cultivated strong relationships with the Christians of Alexandria and Jerusalem, and would do so wherever there was money to be made. Famously, the Venetians claimed to have stolen St. Mark's body from Alexandria, an act which meant they could lay claim to a relic to rival any in the Christian world. Supposedly, the thieves placed the corpse in a cart, then put cabbage on top of that and pork on top of the cabbage. The Muslim guards inspected their wares, but did not wish to touch the unclean meat, and so waved them through rather than inspect what lay below. Such knowledge of local customs was allowing the Venetians to build a formidable commercial network. Next time, we'll be looking at a century of progress in the Balkans as we watch the transformation from Bulgars to Bulgarians. In the meantime, why not get a free audiobook from audible.com? I asked listeners for recommendations, and here is the first one. The Popes, a history by John Julius Norwich. We've just been discussing the papacy, now free of both Byzantine and Frankish control. And as some of you will know, John Julius Norwich wrote a three-volume history of Byzantium, which is still at the top of my bibliography. It's a great introduction to the topic for readers who know very little and enjoy a good anecdote. Uh, JJN definitely has a dry sense of humour that works nicely for Roman history, and though it's a more sensitive subject, I suspect it will still be in place when discussing the popes who shaped our past. Pick it up, or any of a 100,000 other books for free at audibletrial.com forward slash tvcritic. 